Yo, my name's Top Kitty and I'll steal your bitch and your hoe And take all your dough while I'm at it Got a magnum automatic, I'm the wrong motherfucker to be messing with I got you sweating there, cause I'm the blessed kid <laughs> Wow, that was incredible! <laughs> Recorded live at Machine Sound London This is the Bad Before the Bad Before podcast And I am your host, Chaz Langston And this is episode number two The Difficult Second uh, doing a number two look who's talking to two unlimited nothing compares to you two can play at that game all classics in their own little way really aren't they anyway welcome to the show now if this is the first episode you've ever heard welcome and thank you if this is the second episode you've listened to thank you and welcome back if you didn't know already this is the show in which we take our guests way back to the very beginning and we go through their musical journey with them right up until the point until they actually become successful. And today, we get to go on that journey with singer-songwriter and UK folk legend, Mr Beans on Toast. Well, actually, he's just Beans on Toast. He's not a fucking geography teacher. So during this episode, we talk to him about his hopes and aspirations of living in Compton as a successful gangster rapper. That is easier said than done. It's not, actually. It's easier done than said, I reckon. We also hear stories about the time that he ended up on a wheelie bin in just his pants in a fit of rage at a gig. We talked to him about writing his first ever children's book, The Fascinating Adventures of Little B, and how his constant attendance at Glastonbury Festival led to the birth of the folk legend that we all know and love now. Anyway, that's enough of my ramblings. It's time for episode two of the Bound Before the Bound Before podcast with our guest, the one and only Beans on toast all right so are you you ready to go let's do it all right man beans on toast in the house hello Chaz. braintree massive exactly congratulations on your new release man that's fucking brilliant oh thanks yeah the kids book yeah yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's been a it's been quite the, quite the project uh certainly um it's a bit of a different world we've got two more kids gigs this weekend um and it's been great, but I'm sort of ready to draw a line behind it and just uh, children's gigs, you know, playing to 155 year olds is, uh, <laughs> well, it's something different. It's just something completely different. I can only imagine. Tougher? Um, Not tougher. Okay. You just can't let go. You kind of like, because my daughter's there on stage as well. So I'm kind of like gigging and parenting at the same time. Gotcha. And um, so... Yeah, I don't, I don't, I, I, you know, I come away from a gig like, yeah, and like I really look forward to gigs and stuff like that. These ones, I'm kind of like, <laughs> and then it finishes and you just drive home. There's no going to the pub or anything like that. So I'm definitely not. I mean, I had no, I had no plans to become a children's entertainer, uh, but um, I'm not cut out for it either. It turns out. Oh, mate. Well, what inspired you to do it in the first place? It came around because uh, Jamie and Lily, who I did it with, their pals, they invented the character during lockdown. And like, I, I, one of my first gigs back, they lived down in Brighton, and um, they sort of said, oh, look, we've invented this character, Little B. And they showed me all these pictures of this little sort of bee character dancing and like in these all these different scenarios. And it was so cool. And, uh, and then I was just like, you know, we've, we don't really know what to do now. Have you got any ideas? And I've become, you know, my daughter's uh, turning five in January and I've become 
sort of obsessed with children's books like through that like julia donaldson and oliver jeffers and stuff they're like bob dylan in our house right and uh so it was like cool let's write some kids books so i basically just sort of wrote the songs that could be turned into books and then recorded them as as songs as well so it was a project that kept on adding more things we did actually film like a whole youtube children's tv thing as well but it was really? uh, yeah it just didn't cut it it didn't it didn't cut it little b goes to the sea to see what you can see way down deep beneath the waves lie many mysteries from teeny tiny little fish to whales as big as houses crazy plants and hungry sharks and all sorts of surprises Right, let's go right back to the beginning, man. Tell us where you were born. I was born in Epping Hospital, which is... So I spent a most... No one really knows whether I'm from Essex or from London, to be honest. It's actually <laughs> debatable. I was... Uh, I always believed Epping... And I think when I was born in Epping, it was known as part of Essex. Yeah. Um, but when we... When I registered my daughter... Um, to when you know you put down where you're born and she was and the woman in the registry thing was like epping in london and i was like no 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 <laughs> so like, for the record <laughs> i'm from essex and she was like no no epping is a borough of london and i was like well not when i was born she's like it's not what matters that's what's getting written down here so yeah depending on where you lie with that what a time but 1980 in what was once a part of essex epping hospital which i don't even think the hospital um exists anymore and i we lived in like around that area like debden and cars somewhere else that i can't remember basically you know there was two or three houses my parents lived in while i was born i can't remember and then we moved when i was maybe before i started primary school so three or four something like that um to rain which is a village on the outskirts of Braintree. And that is where, you know, like I grew up, my parents and my brother, both my brother's still in rain, my, brother, my parents still in Braintree, you know, so I still, uh, still head back to the motherland, you know, yeah. quite regularly. Um, and, uh, but yeah, I was, so yeah, rain County primary school and then Notley high school. And what was, what was home like for you? Are you from a musical family at all? Probably, the, I mean, my parents were, were not musicians um, and, they're, and they're not musicians, but they are devoted music fans, like of the highest order music fans. Like my mum was and is, you know, a, a true Beatle maniac. Right. Like she grew up in London in the 60s and she literally chased the Beatles around like you know when you hear when it, when they did they did a BBC retrospective of the the Beatles like a 12 part documentary and my mum was in it like eight times no way you know, really the, the back of her head at an airport or sort of you know like she's in the room on what is sort of like widely seen as the video for Hey Jude I've that it wasn't filmed as a video but if you sort of you know right. in modern terms if yeah if you look at it you sort of see a video um and you know and their back of her heads there nodded along she was like no waving them back in the airport and and so and she was like you know absolute die hard and 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 with and from the beatles all the other sort of you know sort of 60s kind of rock and roll groups that came with it she sort of loved them all and then my dad 
is a big country music fan um, and obsessive over an American singer called Jimmy Buffett, who right. is, you know, he's massive in the States and very small in the UK, which is something that my dad's always been very proud of because he's kind of like yeah. sort of unique to him. And like my dad's got numerous Jimmy Buffett tattoos. You know, really? my mum's got all the Beatles records. Dad's got all the Jimmy Buffett records. Like <laughs> it was uh, so as much as there was an instruments in the house, like the importance of music was sky high, you know, like absolutely sky high. And the minute that I did show any interest in playing an instrument, it was just like, my dad just went out. He, I, he was, I can't remember the term he used to have. I swapped it for some cable or something like that. He always used to get stuff on the blag. And uh, he somehow blagged me a guitar. And, uh, you know, I was like, I wanted to sign it. like, I swapped it for some cable. Got some, yeah, like, you know, there they was, you know, nothing but supportive from the minute that I sort of like suggested it up until, you know, today. Amazing. And can you remember what the first guitar your dad blagged you was? Can you remember the brand or anything like that? Yeah, yeah. It's cla- it classic. It was the, uh, the old Encore. Nice. Strat yep. lookalike, black and white. The Argos special. Uh, with the, co- yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Combo um, um, and... There's that, and I mean, to to be honest, s- soon after, I don't know where this one came from. I probably swapped for some cable as well, but then there was a sort of <laughs> nylon string acoustic came into nice. existence, um, and 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 that clearly was was a bigger inspiration on me. I mean, not necessarily for my for my teenage years, but even when I was, you know, I always played that yeah. at home. Um, so yeah that sort of that 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 was a big one as well that that little nylon string acoustic that was probably found in the back of a skip you know and probably had an amazing life beforehand and uh yeah i wonder where i wonder where it is now i hope some other little kid's playing it somewhere i hope so man yeah Do you know what it was that triggered you to want to play guitar? Yeah, we started. Uh, we I started telling people, or not I. We, we formed a band, me, Jot, and Dave, and uh, we was just like, "Shall we start a band?" And we was like, "Yeah." And instruments seemed quite far down the list of things you needed to be <laughs> in a band. We was like the first, most important. It's like, what are we going to be called? You know that? What not like? How are we going to make the music? It was like. So we just came up with some names and just graffitied them around the school. Just told everyone we're yeah. in a fucking band. Yeah. And it was like, yeah, cool. People just went with it. It's like, right, oh, great. What's it called? And then, and then we was like, right, what do you do when you're in a band? It's like, <laughs> let's, let's get some instruments <laughs> and start, you know, like, and, and, and start playing. And it was literally as simple as that. Yeah. Well, I'll say as simple. <laughs> Sounded messy. Didn't sound good. <laughs> Can you remember what the original names were? We are, we we only went when we only went through two. We were called Retro. Mm-hmm. Um, before we kind of knew what the word, it was just like a word that sounded cool. Um, and and then I think it was like I think it was sort of pointed out that Retro is in you know a genre is kind of a genre of music within itself so we and we switched from retro to jellico which was you know the band that we went on to play in for for many years after that um 
So I think by the time we'd actually, we'd probably chosen Jellico pretty much by the time we'd, we'd got hold of instruments and got into a room together. Well, Jellico. Which was, Jellico, my mum come up with that name. Your mum well. came up with that. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. How, I mean, I know that it was, there was some story. We was literally just all sitting around shouting out names. And, uh, but it was, um, there was some story about Cap- Captain Jellico had basically like abandoned everybody. There was some tragic sailing tale, like of some captain of a ship that had either, I think he'd done something really horrible rather than really heroic, as right. was the kind of, you know, the mental, the teenage mentality of the time. Now I think if I was to name about a name of someone, there's something grand and beautiful <laughs> rather than something sort of, you know, sort of horrible and destructive. But, um, it, it was some uh, some sort of like tragic sea event uh, around this, but but again, more than anything, it just sounded cool, and it just didn't sound like anybody else had come up with that name, so we just took that and ran with it. Well, it's a fucking great name, and to think, so we're like the same sort of age. I remember that name coming out. Would you have been about uh, 15, 16 at the time? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. 16 years and old. And I, yeah. I could still remember that. I could still remember that name clear as day. It's a fucking great... Retro is a great name as well. Yeah, I remember... I'm surprised there hasn't been a retro. Yeah, sort of like... I mean, it, it was sort of the things that... The fact that someone got away with calling their band the music, you know, and there's, <laughs> there's a band called Jungle now and stuff like yeah. that, which are whole different genres of music. So, you know, like we could have something about it. Uh, I don't know whether it was because in our heads that was a bit of the pretend name as well. But we also had, um, our, I mean, we had names for our albums before we had songs as really? well. Really? It was definitely that. Yeah, we, I think we, we used to like design the cases and stuff. Like retro, the retro album was called Welcome to the Purple World, which is, you know, <laughs> These like, are great. Yeah, I mean, and that was, you know, like, that was me and Dave fucking 16 years old doing bloody acid, thinking <laughs> we're in a purple world. Um, so, you know, like taking inspiration from all the right places as a teenager. <laughs> um, but that always sticks with me. Welcome, Because Dave just shouted it out to me. Welcome to the purple world. It was like, <laughs> wow, yeah. Um, so we had that. We, we definitely had the kind of um, the name and the attitude um, sort of, you know, locked in. And then it was like when it comes to getting in a room and playing, we thought we were great and we had no fucking idea. I think we played three gigs before we realised that the bass and the guitar have to play the same thing. <laughs> you mean? And I'm not, I'm not even joking. Like, I'd just come up with something on guitar. I'd just be like, da, 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 da. and John would just come up with something on bass, not in the same key or anything. <laughs> you know, he'd just come up with a riff. And I just, ah, no, we just play like as if we was just, there was no one else there. And then I just like, just sort of shout over the top of it. And, uh, and I could, I mean, again, the song names were all really cool. And the ideas that we had one called TV Super Guide about how people watch too much TV and stuff like this. <laughs> but like, and none of this was ever recorded, but we definitely did gigs. Cause I remember the first song that we wrote when it was like, me and Jock were like, let's try and, you know, it's like, it was because I'd just do bar chords and he'd just play root notes. Then we was like, 
look, we do the fucking stuff. And it sounded like we'd invented music because we'd been playing, because we'd been rehearsing these other songs, fucking shitloads. Like, and the minute that it was like, it sounded cohesive, it was like, fuck me, this is amazing. You know, it's like, well, yeah, and it was like, from now on, we're only going to play the same thing. And we started, you know, like the band went up a gear when we, you know, but that was, um, I think that was it was an interesting way of learning of having absolutely no one to show us and yeah. not even a friend to go what the fuck are you doing you know like <laughs> no one stood in our way everyone just stood around going like yeah cool you know just fucking get we had to literally had to work it out for ourselves and just like kept just kept on at it and uh and also because with that kind of lack of um uh, of kind of ability the other thing that we never did and i still don't really do is sing other people's songs right like it wasn't like we just couldn't i didn't we didn't have it in us to right. cover someone else's song and like <laughs> if we did we'd just make up what we thought it was like i think we used to maybe do like the end by the doors and we just go and i'd sort of say the lyrics over the top but effectively we was like writing our own songs from from the app from day one and that is yeah yeah and that's something that i still do like if i'll sit down with my guitar i don't know how to to this day i really struggle to play anybody else's songs and uh so that means that's why i'm i write so much now because if i pick up the guitar i've got two choices i either sing one of my old songs that i've sung a bunch of times or i make up a new one and my generally fall into the make up a new song camp of that you know like unless i've got an old song that needs refreshing or whatever so and that's always been the kind of so yeah i guess it's a sort of a, a limitation that has benefits i suppose not being able to go oh we're gonna sound like this we didn't have a choice of what yeah. we wanted to sound like we just like just turned on and went this is this is what it's going to sound like and you know angelico kind it got to a place where you know well where it where the notes were the same when we had a relative <laughs> understanding of, of what a song could be yeah but that's fascinating man because that's that's as grassroots as you can get with like forming a band isn't it so basically none of you guys had any lessons or anything like that you just bought instruments you all picked what instrument you were going to do and then just it out. yeah again was, wow. i mean i sort of knew that i wanted to and the, the the sort of being the singer was wasn't really through any want of of singing or that i'd sort of done any singing before that really it was more just like i you know I wanted to write the words, right? And wanted to come up with what the what the songs were about and stuff like that. That was where that was like that. I'm gonna, you know, I want to do this bit because I want to want the fucking microphone, yeah. uh, basically. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so yeah, that's you know that that's how it came about. And we kept graffiti in the name everywhere and just kept you know kept rehearsing. I mean, we after that once we got started, like band rehearsal was you know it was the best night of the week you yeah. know like so we just did it every night you know it was just like it was like especially like as a few uh, we used to rehearse in lake and elliott social club which is now called the pub i believe <laughs> uh in braintree um and that was so if there was a, a, any kind of big inspiration behind behind that sort of band aspect of it, it was a, a braintree band called planet empathy planet empathy and, i remember those guys yeah man and they were they were like 
three or four years older than mm-hmm. us. So they were in like college and stuff when we were in school. And you know, that's a big age gap when you're when you're that old, aren't you? And they were like a real band. Yeah. And uh and I was just obsessed with them. I went to see them at the Army and Navy and it was like because it was like you'd see them around town and stuff. It wasn't like looking at someone on a TV or you yeah. know, like on a record cover. It didn't feel completely inaccessible. They were like this band. So I just like I kind of honed in on them and uh I found out they rehearsed at um Lake and Elliot's and I just used to hang around their rehearsal room, you know, I just turn up with a little block of hash basically (laughs) anybody want me to skin up (laughs) and it was like yeah it was like as usual you know it's like the golden ticket all of a sudden i was everyone's mate so i'd hang around in their rehearsal room and uh, actually you say that now thinking about it now from that i uh i did have some guitar lessons i went to ed from planet empathy's house a couple of times because i was like can you teach me to play guitar and i went round because again he was like this old he lived in his own house you know like and 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 i just went round and we just used to smoke hash and like <laughs> not really play guitar we just talk about music um and but as you know it's, it's like a thread that keeps on going but from that through me doing them lessons of ed he never really taught me any guitar but he did around the same time give me a lift to my first ever Glastonbury festival, which changed my life for good. I was 16. Ed gave me a ride. And then he pretty much, when we got there, he was like, you know, see you later. I'm not hanging around with a little kid all weekend. And I hung around, (laughs) you know, I went in and, uh, uh, you know, and it literally changed, changed my life. I think since then in 1996, or seven, 97 it would have been. I've been to every single Glastonbury since then. Wow. You know, so that's how important it became to me from the get-go. I've never, I've never missed one, and I have no intention of missing any as well. So it's like, that was like, bang, right, this is what I want to do. You know, I was already sort of had the band thing going, but, yeah, and it just sort of went from there. One, two, three, four. Oh, that's wrong. Oh, sorry, sorry. So... What were the early influences for you, like music-wise? What made you want to pick? Like, what were the bands that made you want to pick up a guitar and start a band with your mates? The, I mean, there was there was actually like a pre because I mean, we Jellico were a grunge band, mm-hmm. so we were. Uh, I was a big, but before that, I mean, if I was listening to country and uh, the Beatles at home, and then in my early teens. I became obsessed with gangster rap, you know, really? as did many, many people, you know, it was a huge craze, which, and, um, I was, I actually wrote me and Dave, but long before we started a band, we wrote a, like a gangster rap. We was in a, a, a rap band called the blind judges. And we wrote a song <laughs> about, you know, pimps, bitches and hustlers and having AK-47. <laughs> you know, we're two... Really? Yeah, we're two skinny virgins in, <laughs> you know, in a village in Essex. And it's such a culture clash. Um, and and I, and so I think I always had that sort of like wanting to write stuff and sort of... And you, I'll see a, a band where I was like... But then I had this kind of... I don't know. Just one day, I was like, "I'm not a gangster." And it was, it, I'll tell you, it was, it was the placebo album. I saw really? the placebo album in our price in Braintree, and I just mm-hmm. liked the cover. That picture of the kid doing his doing the thing with his eyes, and I was like, 
I just bought it. And I was just like, this music is probably more for me. You know, here, yeah. here we go. Right, I, I'm not a gangster. You know, his songs about, you know, teenage teenage angst and all, and all yeah, this. Yeah. It's just like, all right. And then it was like, right, here we go. And especially because back then you you were a lot more defined by what music you listened to. Yeah. So it was like, it was all of a sudden, it was like Wu-Tang. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to listen to Wu-Tang one day and Placebo the next. It was like, Wu-Tang were out. You know, it was right. like, I don't listen to gangster rap. I'm a, I'm a grieb, I'm a grunge rocker. Yeah. You know, and I was like, I ripped my jeans, I painted my nails and, you know, and we sort of, and, and went for it and that was all happening around this time and i guess that was when the sort of like then it was like right we're going to start a band we're not hip-hop acts um you know we're not rappers and um so so i guess i mean and then you know but this was after like kurt cobain had had, had died you know yeah. and then it was yeah. like right okay what's all the fuss about got into nirvana then you know not when it was happening but but a bit later on and uh trying to think other bands that I loved around that, around that time. Oh, and then it was like the, the UK bands like cable seafood. Um, they were Idlewild. Like again, I I always liked similar to that planet empathy. I liked stuff to feel like it was fucking accessible and there. I didn't like anything that was, uh, because I wasn't the biggest Nirvana fan because not only was it not of our time, but it was just like, it's sort of, you know, Kurt was dead. You know, yeah. it's sort of like I'd, I'd much preferred seafood and, you know, like be, knowing that I was going to be playing a gig, gotcha. you know, like in, in Norwich that I could go to and, and be part of. Um, so I wanted stuff that was, yeah, that was sort of close to me. Um, but yeah, them sort of bands. I mean, there's there's tons more that sort of slip my mind. A lot of the sort of bands that ne- were never really big, like, Yurisai Yatsura, used to love them. Oh, I don't um, know those guys. They were a Scottish band that were a similar kind of like, um, again, sort of placebo, that kind of right. fun but twee rock. I don't know, sort of now varnishy rock. <laughs> now varnishy rock. For want a better explanation. That's great. Um, <laughs> and yeah, that was that, basically. Before we move on, do you remember any lines from your hip hop song? Yo, my name's Tough Kitty and I'll steal your bitch and your hoe And take all your dog while I'm at it Got a magnum automatic, I'm the wrong motherfucker to be messing with I got you sweating it, cause I'm the blessed kid And then Dave came in and went Yo, that's me, the D-double-O-S-G We're rags in the back, we gonna hit your hood We ain't no good, then you know you should try to save yourself Because you're bad for your health, we'll be necking you down Smacking you around when you hear the sound of the judges Blind judges I remember it all. Oh, look at that. Wow. That was incredible. <laughs> I was just expecting to say no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, I, that's I, that's not the first time I've, I've rinsed it since, you know, like 1991. <laughs> <laughs> that's fucking great. But yeah, some things, I mean, my short term memory is short, but my long term memory <laughs> is all right. <laughs> Oh man, um, talking of uh, rehearsing in a social club like every day, was there like supportive people within that social club? Well, yeah, I mean, we was we was only, we were allowed into um, Lake and Elliot's. Um, that was only once a week, and that was Planet Empathy that were letting us do that. And then once we were like realized how much we wanted to do it, we actually got hold of a, an old like container and put oh, it wow. in jo- the 
Jot, the bass player's back garden and like soundproof. I know it was already soundproof. It was this weird feeling where this guy was like trying to get rid of it. And uh, we got crazy cheap. This must have been a bit later when we, um, maybe when we was like 17, we was in college and sort of working and stuff at this time. But uh, we put it in Jot's garden. His brother was in a band called Waster, who yeah. we were sort of chatting about before. And we shared it with them. And then that was, you know, that was when we would practice every night. And I suppose like my folks maybe drove us to a couple of gigs and, and, and stuff like that. I mean, yeah, our families were, you know, were, mm. were, were helpful. There wasn't. And then kind of think, yeah, other bands. Oh, there was a guy, there was Sean from a band called Union Kid. Again, this is maybe going, you know, a few a few years in into it once we yeah. were sort of up and running. There was a right in Braintree Town Centre. You know where Smith's Fish and Chip Shop? I love Smith's Fish and Chips. So <laughs> opposite there used to be a place above the furniture shop used to be Essex Music Centre. Yeah, I'd have my work experience there. So did I. <laughs> Fucking A. That was the easy that was when I learned that there's some easy gigs out there. Because yeah. I, I was supposed to do it for, for two weeks and they thought I was doing it for two days. Oh really? Yeah. And I was like, I come in the third day and I was like, I thought you'd done. And I was like, I'm here for <laughs> two weeks. And I was like, Oh well, you don't have to come in if you don't want. And I was like, All I'd done is play yeah, I sit around playing guitar anyway. And so I just went there in the back room. But Sean, a guy called Sean from Back with Union Kid, built a studio at the back there and uh and he that was like massive you know eye-opener into again he was a lot older and you know he had a fucking recording studio and and again he'd let me hang around hang out but skinned up uh (laughs) and uh, so i sort of saw a little bit about you know like just started learning about how to put records together and and also just that there's you know that, that there sort of was a living to be made yeah in you know by other people that weren't necessarily you know in in the band that were just sort of like there was this sort of industry around it um so that was you know yeah and there's probably there's probably some huge sort of guiding figures in my life that i'm just (laughs) forgetting about at the moment but whoever they are i apologize against killing and against invading against doubling military spending on the ground and drones in the sky against corruption and media lies against anyone who profits from death against oh uh, right so what was your first live performance you ever done it would have been at the army and navy yeah oh really Jellicoe. first gig Jellicoe. amazing um it feels like something you should remember clearly shouldn't it but uh, yeah <laughs> yeah I'm going to say the I'm going to say the Army and Navy, um, which is somewhere that we went on to play. You know, and that was also the place that I saw um, Planet Empathy. Yeah, and the first gig, the first gig that I went to. So it was, and you know, after that we played it many times, and it was very much. You know, I'd go to see a lot of bands that played. That was our kind of mu- Jellicoe's musical home, I guess. Braintree was in severe lack of a music venue. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of the Braintree bands used to put on coaches. We'd put on the coach to Chelmsford, which is, you know, 20 minutes, half hour drive away and a coach. And we'd pay for it out of our own money and uh, and just take a bunch of kids from Braintree yeah. to Chelmsford. 
Why no one saw a gap in the market? And one of the empty pubs in Braintree <laughs> could have fucking conned onto this and said, you can all just come in here. Like, and uh, that was, you know, that was a pretty, uh, considering, you know, we was all working in, in various factory or supermarket jobs, you know, as hard as we could to put money into the band. And we we saw everything that we put into the band is, it didn't matter. It wasn't about making money, you know, it was about making it good. So we was like, gigs just used to cost us money and that was just yeah. an, ab- an absolute given i don't think the army and navy ever paid very well if at all <laughs> you know like and uh um but we'd happily pay however much it cost to get to get people down there um just to you know to to have a good time and they were you know they they were amazing <laughs> nights out we did a when jellico started getting a bit further afield we did a couple of london gigs and we um we'd do the same thing with a coach. Obviously it's a longer drive and we did, we got a review in NME from a gig at the Bull and Gate and it's fucking looking back at it now. It's absolutely bang on. Cause it's like, was it Braintree's Jellico have come to, uh, come to Camden and they've brought all their mates with them. It's like, they've been sick <laughs> outside the kebab shop like, and, they, and they're all, they're all slogging bottles of white ace and it's only seven thirty, And it's like, that was a fucking Jellico gig right there. It was like the whole, so a couple, we, there was a place called the red eye in, King, in King's cross and they just turned the whole bus away. The bus pulled no up. Outside the door, they opened the door. And our friend Gina just fell out and smashed bottles, went everywhere. And people were just being sick as I was getting off the bus. It stunk of weed on there or whatever. And the woman that run the venue was just like, none of these people coming in. I was like, there are, you know, there are, that's our crowd. It's like, <laughs> you can't, you can't play either. You know, just, just chucked us out. Oh, fuck. So you guys can play at all. I mean, maybe she let us in the end, but she certainly didn't let, let, let anybody else, let anybody from, from that coach in. And, uh, so the coach, you know, it was, it was part of the party, I guess. What would you say is the worst gig you've ever done? Um, as Jellico or in my life? Whatever you want. Fucking hell. I mean, I, 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 I guess I don't really concentrate on these, these, these things. Um, Good answer. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, mean, I, I, I struggle to remember. To, yeah, I'm, I'll come back to you on that. If if during the rest of the conversation something stirs up <laughs> of, a, of, of a bad gig, but I mean, like, I can't think I'd ever like. There's there's gigs that are better than others, and I've you know now I've I've played thousands of shows, um, but I, I'd still no matter how kind of you know a lot of people judge gigs by how many people are there and they're upset when there's not many people there, but that doesn't. I'd always still rather be playing than not. I think. And uh, mm-hmm. I'd I'd always do whatever it is in my power to make sure that it's not a bad gig. Um, so how bad can it be, mate? What a fuck it! You don't. You've answered the question perfectly. <laughs> All right, we don't have to don't have to circle back on that one. We don't have to go back on that. You've nailed it. It's great because obviously I've asked people that before, and they'll say like, oh, they talk about times where they've played to no one. Uh, but then they'll turn around and go, but that was so funny that night because obviously some of the worst gigs you do are often the fondest memories, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I'm remembering some bad ones now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... Uh, it's up to you if you want to share them. Well, I, there was a festival at uh, in Scotland called Eden Festival. And I just basically... I. 
I went on straight after Howard Marks, the right. legend, right. the absolute legend. And like, um, he finished. And in my head, I was like, let's just get on as quick as we can and play to this amazing crowd of, you know, Howard Marks fans and stoners. I was yeah. like, this is, you know, this is the perfect beans on toast crowd. And, um, everyone was like, wait, mate, because, um, we're not ready. And I was like, no, no, no. Cause it's easy. It's easy. You just need to, you know, like didn't listen to them plugged in. It sounded dreadful. And then oh. I think I had a go at someone because it sounded dreadful. Oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> and it was only in hindsight. I was like, I was being a dick. Uh, so that gig, <laughs> I was probably not one of my proudest moments. And, um, and there was another gig in a rehearsal room in Leeds where it was like this weird all day that I just, I took the, the, I just looked at one time like midday. So I arrived at midday and uh, I was on at nine o'clock at night and there was no food, just a, a crates of booze. So I just got shit. I ended the gig <laughs> on, in my pants on top of a wheelie bin. <laughs> Which was something to do with it was something to do with which again sounds great, but I ended I I, I should rephrase that I ended that in my pants on a wheelie bin in a fury because I was somehow I was I was annoyed it was something about sound it was a sound issue again I think there was like a rock band playing next door or something why that inspired me to take my clothes off and. Uh, <laughs> And I still work with that promoter in Leeds and uh, not every time that we do a show, I'm always, I still apologize because I think me and him had it out a little bit. So they're my two, they're my, they're my two gigs that I'm not proud of, but um, I, yeah, whether they were, I don't know how they were for the people in the, in the crowd, but I think my heart sinks to think of them. Look at this, it's called a sampler. Look, look, you do this. Yeah, yeah, you hear that? Every chorus, bang, bit of impact. And then we do it. Oh, hang on. No, sorry. I don't know how to turn this off yet. Is it it's one of these? Something like that. Right. What do you reckon? Gives a bit of an edge. If we could go back a little bit, I just want to talk to you about lyrics, if that's all right. Mm -hmm. Can you remember any early lyrics from back in the day? Um, Apart with yeah. we've done the rap song. Apart from the, yeah. So I know <laughs> that your memory's yeah. good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, the... Uh... I mean, the first the first song I wrote for Jellico was I wrote um, during work experience at EMC. Amazing and uh, and yeah, it was called it was called "This Is a Fish" <laughs> um, or "This Is the Fish," <laughs> and it was like my early lyric writing was very much like trying to come up with stuff that sounded cool, right, rather than writing about stuff. And it was almost like, and no one, you know, and it's still some of my favorite songs. I don't know what they're about, but it's not how I write anymore. Like, but all the Jellico songs, it was just sort of like, it, it was like, well, I'll say it and you can kind of make up your own meaning. Or, you know, like, right. or it's like, I wrote the song and then I discovered the meaning of the song after sit playing it. Like, but really, when I was writing it, I was, <laughs> you know, like, I can't even pretend that I was trying to convey a, a sort of emotion or whatever it was just like just try and you know just phrases and and, and stuff that kind of sounds good and i used you know i i mean i believed it and um 
it was if anything the, the sort of jellico lyrics were probably sort of more poetic than, right. than what i do now which is sort of you know like i write specifically about subjects there's not a beans on toast song if you listen to it you know exactly what it's about there's no beating around a bush and there's no kind of like um sort of lyrical flamboyance i guess or you know it's like this is a song about this subject and here's some words about that whereas jellico is just like here's you know as you don't really you can listen to it a hundred times you're never really gonna work out what it was about and i guess and also i mean it's worth pointing out that when i was in jellico i was singing in a high-pitched american accent <laughs> um which which was kind of the trend in essex at the time yeah um, uh, absolutely again it's a million miles away from what i think like a lot of the stuff that i did in jellico definitely um it it was almost like a, a not knocking what I did then, but it was that 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 it was a reaction to that that I that what that turned into beans on toast because right. it was like when I in the same way that I was like I'm not a, you know I'm not a rapper in Compton yeah you know I was like and and then I saw and then I was like I'm also I don't talk like I sing yeah you know like I, why am I sitting why am I, why do I sound like this when I talk and that when I sing and, and was like, right, I need to, you know, from, I, I, I was like, I need to be English. And, and that has set, hence the name beans on toast. It was like, right. I'm going to be an artist that is English and, you know, I'm not going to pretend it was about me being who I am, not sort of like not imitating what I heard. And, um, so it, that was a sort of direct reaction. And I, and I guess lyrically, it was also, I guess, towards... I f actually, I remember clearly there was a few kind of throwaway lines in um, in Jellico songs that people picked up on and was like, and, and, and thought they were... There was a, a line about, like, um, cutting down trees to make way for motorways or something. And a few people were like, man, it's really powerful you're talking about people cutting down trees. Now, at the time... I couldn't give two shits about kind of trees. You know, <laughs> I, weren't, I weren't like that weren't, I guess in my soul, I would have known it was bad, but it certainly yeah. wasn't like, it wasn't like, it, it didn't, um, it, you know, it wasn't in my conscious at the time to think yeah. or act like that. But then, when, but when people picked up on it and it was like, oh, wow, you know, like if people are going to be listening, you know, like maybe you should be saying something. And again, it was like, who am I? You know, I am English. What do I stand for? And, you know, maybe that's what I should be singing about, singing about something rather than just, you know, yeah, singing about nothing. So it was, it, it definitely, it educated me into, you know, yeah, in, into what, into what I turned into doing basically. So it's really clear that like, even though like you joke about the rapping thing and everything, you've made a clear evolution from, from your, I was going to say the creative process. So I didn't want to sound wanky, but like from like starting to write, you're kind of writing and you're still like that rap song was great. And you're like, but I'm not this. Yeah. And then you've gone here and you've gone, yeah, but I'm not that. You've made like really clear steps to become the artist that you are from like day dot. That's quite impressive, man. Yeah, man. To find myself. So you found yourself. But I still think, you know, there's still time I can move out to Compton. We can go full <laughs> circle. You know, like, I'll get that AK, finally. You know, <laughs> just like... I mean, like, you know, to be honest, there's, there's probably a... Um, 
if we would have stuck with rapping, you know, who knew that UK hip hop was going to be so good <laughs> and so big? You know, like if we, we probably if we didn't pick up that guitar and kept rapping, you know, like we, we could have been maybe we would be in Compton, you know, me and Dave living it up. <laughs> Or we could have got shot, so you know, never play with the part. What do you think was the turning point for you realizing that you can do this for a living? Um, do you remember like a pivotal moment where you're like, I could fucking do this? No, because I mean, Beans on Toast, the only reason that I get to do Beans on Toast for a living is because I was in, I had this very rare uh, scenario that I'd created where I could, Beans on Toast was the most important thing I was doing, but I had other income. That So after... So we kind of, in a nutshell, we moved from Essex to London mm-hmm. with the band, with Jellicoe. It was like, right, things started going well. We was a real band. It was like, we've, we've got to go to London. Went down, you know, did everything we needed to do. Slowly the band sort of fell apart. And But through the, I got very much into kind of promoting the band. You know, that was my role mm-hmm. when we got down there. We was all out promoting the sort of and the design and all stuff like that. And as the band fell apart, Jot moved back to Braintree and me and Dave stayed in London and we basically started running indie nights and running clubs. And uh, and from that kind of booking venues. And uh, so this kind of this creative drive that we had from the band had found a great home. Right. You know, it was we were still working within music. We was we were basically living a party. You know, our job was to go to other clubs tell people to come to ours, you know, DJ and booking bands. We yeah. live, Then from that, we moved into a music venue. We ran a music venue. And what, and it was there. It was at Nambuka in Holloway. We'd been like, you know, we was making a, a good living, you know, more than we'd ever seen in in Braintree, running these parties, and, and, and but still had no boss. And we still did exactly what we wanted. And it was around that time that I started doing Beans on Toast. So it was like, when I could do whatever gig I wanted, I, it wasn't like, oh, I can't do this because of, of work commitments or anything. I could play gigs for absolutely nothing. I also had a whole bunch of hookups. Around the same time, yeah. Dave started, started dr- well, before that, actually, Dave started drumming in a band called The Holloways. I managed them, and yeah. they did really well. We did, like, you know, like, top 20 albums and stuff like that. So we sort of, you know, world tours, essentially. Yeah. So we was doing all, all of that was going on while i while beans on toast was starting so and even after you know even after holloways up until like five years ago is when i stopped promoting you know i was still booking venues and still had an income but still never i could still tour whenever i wanted yeah and, and say yes to any gig that i wanted um for so beans on toast was active for i'm guessing here because my numbers are bad but maybe like eight years or something you know working it but not necessarily needing the income they provide and only after that long did it turn into a place where it's like okay i'll you know now it is something that i can solely rely on the music 
for for a living and even then i you know i made some fundamental changes i let you know i left the record label i was on so i could release my own music because i i'd learned how to do it and knew you know like so it was like tidying everything up so that every you know like so that i could survive off it financially and by that time you know gig fees were you know a lot better but you know it was the gig fees only got there and the, and the kind of uh you know people only started coming to the gigs because i'd played for fucking years yeah for nothing done which is why groundwork. it's 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 an example of why if someone does and i'm not knocking people for having this now but if for example you do come from money and you have like parents that are going to be able to pay your way you've got a lot more chance you've got a yeah. lot more chance to be able to make it in as a musician if someone's gonna you know pay your rent yeah until and, and for for fucking eight years and then like you know and then it's like especially if you want to do something niche or you know and like i often find certainly what i'm not what i don't want to do this is kind of like disregard I, I, there's a lot of stuff out there at the moment which kind of talks people away from being musicians or songwriters there's a lot of press right. about how hard it is yeah. being a songwriter and i'm not knocking at that but i just in case people are listening fucking do it you know it's also yeah. a brilliant thing to do and you shouldn't dissuade anyone from doing it or say that it's only something for the rich or the privileged you know find a way to make it work that's effectively what you know like we moved down to, i moved down to london with with fuck all you know, yeah. right? and we, we just did the flyer in, we did the work and just found work where being a musician held an importance around it was, but that unique opportunity got it, that got beans on toast to a place where it's like, so that it certainly wasn't like, Oh, I'm going to do this for a living. It was just like, if anything, it was just like, it just went along with what I was doing for a living until it could survive on its own. Mate, that is fucking incredible. That you just so you just made that happen. You just, you kind of like came in from the inside, and worked your way back out. I think like yeah, I mean like I think when 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 sort of a started as beans on toast, it was more. It was like I'm not going to say it was a joke because it certainly wasn't. You know, like but it was it it was more. My head was more like I pictured being like promoting and you know doing that side of things being. That was how, you know, that was how I made a living. I'd basically, like, when bands didn't show up at Nambuka, I'd just get up You'd and play. play. You know, that was the, you know, like, I sort of wrote the songs. And that was how it started. But it was just like one gig led to another. And like I said, just because I was in on in a position where I could say yes to every gig for fuck all. Yeah. It, 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 the, the one, one, so, and it was cool because then it was, it also meant I never had to bend to anybody's rules. Yeah. Or it's like, you know, and it was like, and it, the kind of the attitude, I think people liked, certainly in the early days, you know, it was like the songs, you, you, everything about it, you know, even just, it was songs that's never going to get played on the fucking radio, you know, like, but lots of people were like, people were always like, how do you get away with it? Just singing, making everybody, you know, just sort of like doing lines of coke on stage and shit, you know, just whatever the hell we wanted, you know, and it was just like, because it was like, well, I don't need anything from it. You know, yeah. I'm just doing it because I want to and because I, I get to do it. You don't need it or want anything from it. And that became what I believe is the, the kind of draw of it because it was like, oh, wow, it's just sort of like it's got this sort of outlaw aspect to it. Absolutely, man. Which, you know, is, you know, you know, now I'm releasing kids books, you know, and it's like a whole whole different thing, evolution. But certainly uh, the, the, to begin with, knowing that, you know, like I, I, I didn't have to answer to, to anyone. And that was, it was in that, 
musical place where you know where beans on toast was born as well fucking hell man what a fucking amazing journey that's still that you're still on still going fucking brilliant that's that's blown me away i've got to say that's fucking because obviously i knew who you are and i know where you're at but i never really knew the journey I, I remember Hence the joy of podcast. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so it's guys. Will you shut the fuck up? Thank you. The last few questions are kind of music related. Okay. The first one is if you were a wrestler or a fighter of any sort, what would your walking music be? Song about pacifists. Um, <laughs> no, um, I did see this actually. There, uh, there is a um, uh, there's a song by a guy called Paul Fawn uh, called "A Great Day to Whoop Somebody's Ass." Ah, perfect. That'd be the one. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, it's a great tune. It's a great tune. Sort of bluesy. He's a brilliant songwriter. But yeah, it's a great day for me to whoop somebody's ass. <laughs> It's a fine day, so you better get off of my back. Might get cold, cocks, if you cross my path. It's a bad day for me to whoop somebody's ass. I'll be like, <laughs> That's perfect. That sounds like a song that would be played on Jackass or something. They're big into their, like, Americana side of, yeah. Yeah, it's, it actually it's quite similar to that vibe, yeah. Yeah. Right, there go. That's perfect. All right, man. What is the greatest TV theme tune? ever written intro or outro um round the twist mate that's a fucking great shout have you heard the word about the bird and the spider and wiggled and twiggled and fell up the side have you ever ever felt like this when strange things happen now you're going around the twist <laughs> mate that is a fucking great tune great shout great program that was yeah, kind of yeah, super weird. They it? couldn't yeah. make anything like that these days. I don't think. I said, no, like, right, granddad saying that. It was like bird, loads of bird shit. Like they covered <laughs> the lighthouse and they were like swimming in bird shit. It's like be interesting to see how well that dated. Actually, that would be. That I think it's is. on Netflix. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> Great choice. All right, man. Uh, what song would you like played at your funeral? Um, as a song, um, it's right. Who's it by? It's a song by, it's on an album called a case for the, a case of the case. Um, what's his name? Sam Baker. Okay. So it's, it's a song. It's Sam Baker covering a song by Peter case. The song's called still playing. And, uh, and it's on a, a, a tribute. It's like a tribute album from a songwriter called Peter case. And Sam Baker, and weird in a in a strange thing. I'm not a particularly big Peter Case fan. I'm not a particularly big Sam Baker fan. There's just something about when these two, the, when this person sung, sings that person's song, it's just like, um, kind of really sad um, song of kind of about songwriting. And uh, yeah, I've just always, always said. I remember with uh, Bobby Banjo, my kind of you know dear friend and long time sort of musical companion and we was having some deep heart to heart in some sort of far-flung corner of the world and i was like talking about this and i was like you still remember it because i was like obviously it's a whistle you still remember the 
the song is like, yeah, man, Gina G. <laughs> <laughs> and I fucking know that he's going to get one last laugh where it's just like, just as, you know, just as the coughing goes away, it's like, ooh, ah, just a little bit, ooh, ah, a little bit more. And he'll be, because he'd be in a position where he'd be like, Jay entrusted me with his <laughs> funeral song. And everyone would be like, fair enough. If he was going to entrust it, anyway, it's with you, Bobby. And then he'll just slam on Gina G for one last laugh. So there's what I want and there's what I believe will happen. And they are at the polar opposites of the musical spectrum. Um, so either, either still playing by Sam Baker or Gina G, who are just a little bit. I'm sure there's room for both. No. You could have a little intro and outro. No, because this, you don't want to, <laughs> nah, you don't want a fucking funeral playlist, do you? It's like Because otherwise it's just like, what song did they have played? You're like, I don't know, there was a whole bunch. You know, like, and then it's, and then it, you're still, then you're leaving it in someone else's hands. You'll be like, oh, I think you like this one. You're like, oh, and they'll be playing this sort of least favorite objects. No, I think it's like, you know, going for the power. It's just like, it's quiet, you know, and then the song bangs and then it's done. <laughs> All right, man. And the last question is, what advice would you give a young beans on toast? Well, I've actually got a whole song about that. Actual oh, really? Thing. Uh, yeah. Um, where it's, you know, it's sort of like if you could give advice to your younger self. And after sort of thrashing it out in Art of Song, I sort of said, none. <laughs> you know, I just, <laughs> would just leave, I'd just leave myself to it. Like, for two reasons. One, because, um, you know, what do I know? And two, because I wouldn't fucking listen anyway. I know I wouldn't. <laughs> Being like, so in that in, in, the, in the lines of the song is that I'll probably just leave him dancing <laughs> Glastonbury Festival is changing they got a new system in place everybody's got to wear a barcode wrapped around their wrist and in order to get a ticket you must register yourself with a photograph a proof of address and a proportion of your wealth. One last thing I want to just go into. You were saying earlier you've been to every Glastonbury since 1996 and then you have a song about playing Glastonbury. Mm. How did it feel the first time you got to play Glastonbury, playing that song? Well, I mean, <laughs> there's two different two different stories. That's quite a clusterfuck of information you're asking for. <laughs> the, uh, uh, I mean... Effectively, uh, Beans on Toast began. Uh, my first ever Beans on Toast gig was at Glastonbury. Oh, really? Like I'd, I, I was. I'd been writing a bunch of a bunch of songs, and um, and I had the name Beans on Toast. And my my intention was to kind of start a band. I'd already chatted to some other musicians, and I was like, I, I, I had these songs, and I was like, maybe I'm gonna start a band. And then at Glastonbury, just in this like little 10 um the there was like a guy playing what was it called it used to be called the banyan tree cafe um and uh there was just this guy playing it wasn't even like an open mic thing just this guy was playing on his guitar singing these kind of like little ditties and uh and as he finished he just put the guitar down and it was just kind of there and i was like can i can i do a couple of tunes and he was like yeah yeah do it oh amazing and it was quite busy in the tent and i i, I got up and you know a lot of these first songs that i wrote were about getting hammered at festivals <laughs> and uh 
I just sung them to a bunch of Hammond people at a festival and like everybody loved it. I was right. halfway through the second, the second song and I was like, I am not going to start a band. I am going to do this. Uh, um, brilliant. You know, I was like, it was, it was clear as day. It was like, you don't need a band. It's more apparent now that because these songs are really English and they were really, like I said, it was really lyrical based. It was just like, boom. And uh, yeah, so that was like my first kind of thing. And then I went on, I, you know, I managed, I, so I'd been going, I hadn't really been, it's not like I went to Glastonbury looking for gigs up until that point. I'd just been going because I loved it, you know. Yeah. And then after that, the next year I got some gigs, but it wasn't like, I, you know, not nothing official. I, no one would give me a ticket, but I could play at the little cafes and I'd be on chalkboards and stuff like that. And that went on for a good few years. And then I, um, I don't, and then I played like left field. I said, yeah, no, the next, sorry, the next year I did get a proper book in and I played at left on the left field stage, which is Billy Bragg's stage. And, uh, and then I, I basically had a couple of years where I was getting gigs at Stromerville and um, uh, at left field. And then one year I couldn't, I couldn't get a gig. And I was like, I'd, I'd emailed all my usual people and I was like, I'm coming to Glastonbury, I want to play, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, uh, and it was like, no one's going to give me a gig. And I wrote this song called Can't Get a Gig at Glastonbury. <laughs> Effectively, kind of having a go at everyone for not yeah. giving me a gig, potentially. And, uh, uh, and, and kind of signaling out Billy Bragg, you know, like name-checking Billy Bragg as Trump. <laughs> like, I don't know why. And... Um, and I mean, when I wrote it, it was like, so thank you, Billy Bragg. Thank you, Strummerville. Thank you, Emily Evis. Bye bye. And it sort of went on like that. And, um, uh, and, and then I played that song out. So it, like in my head, well, as soon as you play a song at a gig, then it's, it's sort of born as yeah. such. So it, the, the gig was out there. It, it was born. And then the next day, Billy got back in touch and was like, oh, sorry, it's been a hassle. Yeah, yeah, of course, got a slot for you at Stromerville, no, uh, uh, on left field. And I was like, fuck, you know, I've like written this song about not being able to get a gig in <laughs> fucking gig. And then, and then a bunch of other shows come in. And then it was like one, the show that Billy had offered was this kind of, he does a thing called Billy's, Billy's Big Roundup, uh, where you sit, all sit on stage. So there's like four songwriters and Billy. It's a great thing that he does at Glastonbury. And you kind of, you all sit on stage for an hour and you take it in turns to play songs. Right. So there I was. I had this song about Billy Bragg not giving me a gig at Glastonbury, <laughs> even though he'd given me a gig at Glastonbury. And I'm on stage with him. And in the in the sort of midst of it all, I was just like, uh, so the line is, and when I, you know, the, the actual line was, I said, it's like, thank you, Billy Bragg, face trouble. I don't know why I can't get a gig at Glastonbury. And I was just like, you know, knowing that Billy was thick skin and whatnot, I was like, so fuck you, Billy Bragg. Fuck you, Stromerville. Fuck you, Emily Evis. Fuck your old man. And so I just sort of went on with this sort of like mad thing. I don't really know what took hold of me. And, uh, and then Billy stood up and he was like, ladies and gentlemen, Bezos has last ever gig at Glastonbury. <laughs> and... <laughs> Uh, so that yeah, and then like, but I mean that, and that was a popular song of mine because it, you know, it detailed my love for the festival as yeah. much as my sort of embarrassment of not being able to get a gig, and uh, and then a few years later, I kind of kept on getting, you know, moving around different stages at Glastonbury, and I played at Avalon, which was, you know, at the time my my biggest Glastonbury show, probably one of one of my biggest gigs ever, yeah. and uh, so I walked on stage and I was like, we're going to kill this song today. 
like and uh, and I opened with I can't get a gig at Glastonbury and I've never played it since. Uh which No way. Yeah, which and uh, which does a weird thing because so many people want me to play it. Yeah. It's like, why do you not want me to be a man of my word? I don't understand. <laughs> like the thing is it's it's fucking easy for me because it don't take me long to forget a song. You know, if I don't play it, it's forgotten. So it's not even like gun to my head, I wouldn't be able to play that song. So it's like even if I what even if I was like pissed and they'll go, Oh right, I'll go do it. But I was just like so I just killed it that night, never never sung it since. Oh, Billy mate. still pulls me up on it. He's still yeah? like, still got that song about cool, like calling me out. And I'm like, No, no, we're like, we're like that. <laughs> just run into the gig, man. <laughs> so, I mean oh, I've and I've played I've, I've played left field a bunch of times since then. All, yeah. all, all as well. Good, good. Good old Billy Bragg. What a hero. I mean, he's an Essex hero as well. Yeah. I mean, that was, again, the year before I did that show at Glastow where um, I got up and just sung a few tunes, I saw Billy play. And I remember, you know, I remember my dad used to play me Billy Bragg. And now dad always says I used to cry whenever he put Billy Bragg on the <laughs> car. <laughs> so I was always like, yeah, I mean, he's like, he used to cry when I listened to in the car. But like um, I watched him at Glastow, and and that was where, when I said these things about wanting to be English and wanting to sing songs about things, that was a direct yeah thing from watching Billy Bragg play, being like at Glastow and seeing. But I loved Glastonbury, and I saw this person that was like meant so much to Glastow. Kind of, he was like at home talking about important things. And and just like again, it, I knew what he, I knew what the songs were about. Like, and it was also those songs of a message, and it was powerful. And it was like that was you know like that sowed the seed to what I then did the following year, and it sort of yeah it sort of went on from there. And you know, and I've done like we did. I supported Frank Turner at Wembley, and uh, the lineup was yeah. And I like you know Frank's an old friend, and he's sorted me out no end and after doing a bunch of you know like small tours and stuff with him when he did his first arena he was like you know let's do it do you want to play and i had a 20 minute slot at the top of the bill and, and they uh um, it was frank billy bragg down a second scroobius pip and me oh what a fucking great lineup yeah it was an incredible night and uh and billy was on stage talking you know to ten thousand people talking about the history of folk music in one of his songs doing a bit of a rant and he was like folk music is like you know like woody guthrie puts down yeah an anchor and we're just links of this chain and he was just you know like speed seeger is a link to the chain bob dylan is a link to the chain frank turner is beans on toast is a link to the chain i'm just standing there watching billy bragg tell ten thousand people that i'm a link on the folk music the giant folk music chain and it was like all right like that's a proud moment you know yeah like, that's for sure a problem. Fuck, that's fucking. I'm so glad I asked you that now. I'm, I'm glad you answered it. I didn't think you were going to at first <laughs> when you said it was a clusterfuck. Oh mate, what a fucking incredible journey you've you've had and you've and you and you're still having. I know I've already said that exact same line, but it's fucking it's mind blowing, man. And the way you, you're obviously a really hard worker and a really smart guy, man. You just, you can you're living proof that you can make shit happen. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I hope so. Like I said, I do worry that there's that there's not much encouragement for people to be musicians out in the kind of you know, in in, in the sphere and in the kind of 
the world at the moment, a lot of times you see that there's no money in streaming and that it's hard to run music venues. And, and I'm not saying that's not true, but I also feel like it, you know, like encouragement is good and, and people need to be known that it, it's also just because it's difficult doesn't mean it's fucking impossible, you know, like, and it shouldn't just be left to people that, you know, that can afford it. It's a creative endeavor. Uh, and you know, and and yeah, and just yep. fucking get it done. Right. Well, on that note, mate, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Branch is in the motherfucking house. Braintree Massive. <laughs> Beans on toast, ladies and gentlemen. I fucking love that guy. How cool is that, man? That is a proper grassroots blue collar, getting off your ass, getting shit done story, and I love it. So during that episode, you'd have heard several tracks by Beans on Toast, one of which is his brand new single, The Three Stooges, which is available now on all streaming platforms, as is his entire back catalogue. And believe you me, that is well worth delving into, so get yourself involved in some Beans on Toast action. But of course, if you're listening to this because you're a Beans on Toast fan, then you already know that. On top of that, you can catch Beans on Toast right now out on tour. You can see him on Thursday the 16th of March in Southampton at The Loft. On the 19th of March, he's playing the Phoenix in Exeter. Tuesday the 21st of March, you can catch him at Moles in Bath. Moles? A bit weird. You can catch him at The Fleece in Bristol on the 23rd of March. And on Saturday the 25th of March, you can catch him at the Lafayette in London, which I will be at. It's a beautiful venue. He's a beautiful guy. It's going to be a beautiful moment. I just want to say another thank you yet again to Beans on Toast for giving me his time and coming on the show and sharing his journey with us. It was absolutely brilliant. I absolutely loved it. And that's episode two in the bag, baby. Yeah! So if you want to get in touch with us at all for any reason, hit us up at tbbtbbpodcast at gmail.com and tell us what you think of the show. Let us know if you've got any band stories that you'd like to share or whether you just think, I'm a bit of a knobhead. All opinions welcome. Please feel free to like and subscribe. I still have no idea what that even means. Uh, you don't have to do that, by the way. I just want to give a huge shout out to my friends at Machine Sound London for their constant love and support. Thanks again for joining us. This is the Band Before the Band Before podcast. I've been me. You've been you. You've been lovely. I've been average. Thank you all again. I'll see you all at the next one, hopefully. Have a great day, great night, great afternoon, whatever time it is, wherever you are. I'll see you at the next one. I've already said that. See you later. Goodbye.